I was reading through some of those names. I was kind of hoping I had my glasses, but I didn't. Since a lot of uh, a lot of tough names there to read through there from Genesis chapter 14. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've read through that, and some of that we, we have to grind through. We understand because some of that's unfamiliar to us, especially those names. You know, it, it reminds me of, of times when we might find ourselves telling a story or an event that has happened in the life of um, uh, our experiences. And we might be telling a story to our spouses or our children or our parents or our friends. And, and while the, the story can make total sense to us as we're telling it, those who hear us might be just looking at us kind of oddly because they're not getting it. You know, they, they, don't, they don't see what this story has anything to do with them. They don't see what it has to do with you. Uh, they don't see what it has to do with what you've been talking about until at some point, the person who's telling the story says, well, remember this or that, or, well, the reason why I'm telling you this, or the point of all this, is this, that, and the other thing. And then you go, oh, okay, now I see the connection. Uh, because otherwise, the story doesn't mean much to us. And you can get like that in, in passages in Scripture where you look at it and you go, okay, where, where's the, uh, the connection here with us? Where, where's the connection with me? And, and Genesis 14 is, could be one of those passages where you might look at it that way. What does that account, what, does those, what do those events have anything to do with me? Well, we hope to get some of that answer tonight, of course. We're hoping to get to that connection. We're hoping to get to those points. The triumph of God's grace is something that's very important to us in faith. And so that's a connection to us. And, and that is, is the title of the sermon because I think it's... it's the reflection of what's going on here in this passage, that the triumph is there and that triumph is happening through one who was his brother's keeper. And through the king of Salem, in those two points, whether we're looking at the brother's keeper or the king of Salem, we can see the triumph of God's grace here and we'll get into it and hope it's a little clearer so that at the end you can say, okay, I, I can see what this has to do with me. The triumph of God's grace is seen in the one who is his brother's keeper. And if you wonder why I make that one of my points, it has to do with the relationship that Abram has with Lot. And it has to do with the contrast of Abraham with an earlier person in Genesis. And I think we've seen that before, right? When you read the Bible, you got to read it backwards and you got to read it forwards. You, you can't just be in one place. You got to see what's been happening and you got to see what it's pointing to. And that's the case here, too, in this passage. You got to look back and you got to look forward. Uh, our passage. Our passages don't just say, or our passage doesn't just say that Abraham seeks to rescue Lot. But literally, and it's interesting how this comes out in different uh, translations, the NIV would say he's, he's out to, to rescue his relative. In our passage, he's described in a couple of places as his kinsman that he was going to deliver, he was going to bring back his kinsman, Lot. 
16. Verse 16 is one of those places. Verse 14 is the other. He hears that his kinsman has been taken captive, and then he makes plans, and he's going to bring back his kinsman. Well, literally, the word that's being used there, and it's not accidental, and it's not something that should be missed, but the word that's being used there is the word for brother. He's going to rescue Lot, his brother, quote unquote. Now, Abram called Lot his brother in chapter 13 as well. And our passage, as you see, also mentions that Lot is the son of the brother of Abram. And so that idea of brother is, you know, the only time it shows up in this translation is when it says he's the son of the brother, but the same word is being used otherwise when it's using it, talking about kinsmen. And so the passage is trying to make the point, if you can boil it down and you can narrow it down, the passage is making the point of the rescue, of the deliverance, of the bringing back, of the saving of someone that Abram calls his brother. Now, we know Lot's not everything that he ought to be. But what you find out here is that Abram is not ashamed to call him his brother. And since he considers him his brother, he's going to do what he can to save his brother from the enemies around him. And that's one of the reasons I call Abram here the brother's keeper. And the other reason has to do with the stark contrast of Abram's behavior with his brother to the behavior of another man to his brother in Genesis. In fact, you can look at a few of those things, uh, even you could probably look into things with Joseph and his brothers and, and find some parallels. But, but I want us just to go back and just think about another man with his brother, namely Cain with Abel. Cain hated his brother. He was in enmity with his brother. And of course, he killed his brother. And when asked by the Lord where his brother was, Cain replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now Cain, of course, we know was, was of the spirit of the serpent. He was in contrast to Abel. He was seeking to destroy the promise of God in the line of the promise, and he was living at enmity with the seed of the woman, of the seed of faith, the seed of promise that would destroy evil in the line of the serpent. Cain's a bruiser. And it seemed like he had destroyed the seed through which the promise of God's deliverance and salvation would come. But of course, we know that Cain's bruising could not and does not destroy this promise of God of a deliverer and the fact that, that another was born to Eve, namely Seth, proved that God would have his way and life through the seed and victory over evil would prevail in God's timing. 
not in someone who was not his brother's keeper. Well, Abram's just the opposite of Cain, isn't he? Because if Cain was an antichrist type of person, then Abram is an anti-Cain type of person. He's, he's actually a type of Jesus Christ. Because he's used by God's grace to deliver from evil those who belong to him. And we know it's of grace for various reasons. It's not something we can we pull out of thin air. We can see it in the text. We know because with whom did he go to battle? The battle was with 318. You know, we read all those names and all those kings and all that power. Abram goes to battle with but a few. Who goes to battle with 318? But that just goes to show, like we read later in the scriptures, that God can deliver with, with few or with many. And that's what God's doing here. God delivered Sarai from Egypt by his grace, taken by Pharaoh. And God delivers Lot by his grace, taken by the allies of Shinar. That God can deliver with many or a few is made no clearer than in Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator between God and men, and who reminds us and challenges us to believe that nobody can come to the Father except by that one. But that's all you need when it comes to God's grace. Because God can save with many or a few. And we also know that it's by God's grace, not just because of the few, but also because of the many, again, uh, against which Abram fought. These were the kings of the earth uh, that were the powers of the day. And as you read through that and, and you slug through the names, uh, you nevertheless see there seems to be an invincibility about them. And they seem to be able to overthrow all in their path and sweep the righteous away with the wicked. And it's interesting that as you're reading through all this, that the first of the kings that's mentioned is the king of Shinar because Shinar is the place, or Shinar is the place where the Tower of Babel was built. So what you see happening here then is that those whom Abram had to battle were no less than the forces of evil or the spirit of the age that, again, slugging through the names, nevertheless, you see this insurmountability going on. It seems like they're just overwhelming. But God overcomes that seemingly insurmountable force by the use of the brother's keeper. And we're reminded again then that the temptations that come our way are, are, are great and they're not to be underestimated. Lot himself could have been accused of underestimating the power of evil when he was residing in Sodom. But these temptations can be overcome by the very power of God 
who not only used Abram in grace long ago, but even better, used Jesus, not with the power of the sword. You know, Abram, no doubt, used the power of the sword, but, but Jesus comes, and without the power of the sword, he overcomes the forces of evil on the cross. God's power, the scriptures say, is made evident in weakness in Christ, but also his grace. And Hebrews reminds us of that. Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 that Christ is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And through the divine Son of God, he takes on our flesh and blood to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery because surely it's not angels that he helps, but the passage says he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate keeper of his brother and his sister, which we are when we so confess it. He's the one who overcomes the curse and the power of sin in our lives, and he's not ashamed to call us his brothers, sinful though we be. Sinners though we be. And while Lot was not the son of the promise, he was still part of the promise. And Abram did not forget his brother that way, not just a brother in blood, but a brother in faith. And in that way, he reflects the Christ to come. But it also reminds us that as those who confess with joy that Christ, by his work on the cross, is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters in grace in the family of God, so also that's the way we ought to be. That's how we distinguish ourselves in the family of God. As part of the family of God in Christ, we too are to be our brothers and sisters, keepers. That's the fruit of faith. It identifies us as sheep rather than, of the shepherd rather than goats. Christ would say to us in that parable about the sheep and the goats, look out for one another in the family of faith because I identify with such people. And truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You were your brother's keeper. And a passage like this shows us the gracious triumph of God in Christ ultimately, but it also calls us to reflect that gracious triumph in our very lives as we keep our brothers and sisters in Christ in mind. Well, the triumph of grace. It's not just found in the brother's keeper, but it's also found in the episode with the king of Salem or the king of peace, Melchizedek. The name literally meaning, right, Melchi, that's king, 
Zedek means righteousness, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem. Salem, of course, means shalom. Shalom means peace, so he's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. And if we want to boil down this triumph to its basics in this passage, here are some of the things that we can say that underline this point, that in the king of Salem, we see the triumph of God's grace. First of all, notice that when it came to giving tribute here, Abram gives tribute to the king of Salem, but he doesn't give tribute to the king of Sodom, does he? And he, uh, we find that uh, he gives a tenth of everything to the king of Salem, but he will not give any tribute to the king of Sodom because he's afraid of what uh, the king of Sodom will make of that. These two kings are polar opposites. The king of Salem is representing God's grace. He's testifying to that grace. The Lord Most High has delivered enemies into the hands of Abram. That's grace. If Abram were to honor the king of Sodom, then glory would have gone to the king of Sodom. He's not going to do that. He's not going to allow for that. He's afraid that what's going to happen is that if he does that, if he shows any tribute to him at all, he's just going to say, you know what? You're going to say, and, and as you read that, it says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted up, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. King of Salem represents the glory of God. And the king of Sodom represents the glory of man. Abram rightly wanted to glory in the triumph of God's grace rather than to glory or to allow anybody to glory in their own strength. I'm the one who made Abram rich. Abram has a choice there, right? I'm either going to glory in God or I'm going to allow somebody to glory in himself and, and gl I'll, I'll glory in him too. And that's still really what life's all about today. To glory in the grace of God and in the glory of God rather than the glories of men. Right? Every day we get up in the morning, it's a question. Is life going to be about glorying in myself? Or is it going to be about glorying in the grace of God and his triumph in my life? The triumph of his grace. Well, Abram knew that too. And that's the question for us all the time. The, the second thing we see here is our passage makes it clear that what the Lord has to offer is so much better because the royal priest is so much better. You notice what the king of peace and the king of righteousness, this royal priest, has to offer. What does he bring out to Abram? He brings out to Abram and those with him bread and wine. And it's the very first time that we read in the Bible 
where bread and wine are combined like that. Now, of course, it won't be the last time. But what did that represent? Well, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, is bringing out the food of kings. The food of blessing, a covenant meal, a meal that bonds, a meal that expresses communion and harmony and friendship. And when you were in covenant with somebody, you shared a meal of bread and wine. And it's the communal covenantal meal provided by a royal priest of God. And it's shared with those who have known God's gracious victory. It's the triumph of God's grace that's symbolized in a covenantal communal meal of bread and wine. The triumph of God's grace has happened to Abraham and that triumph is represented by a covenantal communal meal of bread and wine. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because from time to time, we're offered bread and wine by the royal priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, who lives forever to intercede for us. And those elements symbolize, don't they, the triumph of his grace. Atonement, one on the cross, communion with God assured, everlasting life and forgiveness and blessing, our hope, as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And it makes you ask the question again then, right? Do you value the triumph of God's grace and the glory due to him by our proclamation of his death greater than the glories that the world has to offer us. And this passage is saying to us in Christ that that's exactly what we should value more as well. It's the triumph of God's grace unto his glory. And then look at Abram, right? Abram gives, a, gives him a tenth of everything. In giving the tithe to the king of Salem, he acknowledges that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than whatever priesthood he or his descendants would ever be. Abram is saying, in essence, that by this superior priest of the Most High, I know God's blessing. And by this superior priest, God's grace is acknowledged. And by this king of Salem, Abram cherishes the peace of God's promise opposed to the peace and prosperity that the world has to offer. Again, he's glorying in God's grace instead of the works of men, and he shows it in the giving that he does to this royal priest. Now, we're able to see all this more clearly today because we understand when we read through the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is that superior priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
and his is a royal priesthood that never ends, unlike the, the priesthoods of Abram and Levi, because he lives forever. as do all those who are royal priests in him in the church of Jesus Christ. And his is a superior and eternal royal priesthood, and it's a priesthood that's not based on heredity, but on the office that is his as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the son of David and the son of God. My friends, in that Christ, we're to rejoice also in the victory of God's grace. Communing with him and not the world. Looking at our lives and saying, so who are we going to glory in? Ourselves? Other people? Or in the God who triumphs in his grace through Christ? In that royal priest, we too come to be known as the kingdom of priests. And we're called to be committed, aren't we? Living sacrifice, we talk about that. Devoted to God's service. But also as those who can look forward to immortality. Ruling and reigning with the Lord, like we mentioned this morning. In the order of Melchizedek. And it's not because of anything we did but because of what Christ did for us. And that's why life's about, and at the core of our life, it's about giving God the glory in everything we do. Because of the triumph of God's grace that has come through the brother's keeper, and the Prince of Peace, the King of Salem, Jesus Christ, who's our Savior from sin and the Lord and King of our lives. What good news when we can triumph in God's grace. Amen.